we all want our donations to make a difference. But choosing where to give our money, it isn't always an easy task. Not all charities are equal. Just like companies, some are much better at what they do. They save more lives, they work more productively, and serve causes that are often highly neglected by others. If we want to make the maximum impact with our donations, it's important to find these effective charities. That way, we can be sure our money is being used effectively and delivered to the people who need it most. So what can the average person do? There are thousands of different organisations to pick from, each tackling a different problem, each in a different part of the world. To individually research and compare all these charities is almost impossible. And that's why GiveWell's work is so important. For the last 15 years, GiveWell has been helping people around the world make smarter donations. Their approach is backed up by data and evidence. They've been responsible for directing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of funds to their supported charities. So how exactly does GiveWell pick the most effective charities to donate to? G'day folks, welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. I'm your host, Luke Freeman. In this episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into the work of GiveWell, a non-profit organisation focused on helping people do as much good as possible with their donations. GiveWell has a unique research approach that prioritises finding a small number of the most effective interventions in global health and development. Joining me will be Neil Badisar, who was GiveWell's Managing Director at the time of recording. In this interview, I'll ask Buddy about his approach during his time as Managing Director of GiveWell and some of the charities that GiveWell supports. He'll respond to some of the questions of GiveWell's critics also. A shorter summary version of this interview is also available on our YouTube channel. So without further ado, here's Buddy. Buddy, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. Yeah, so to start off with, it'd be great if you could just tell us a bit about GiveWell, what it is, and maybe a bit of its origin story as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, GiveWell started with a really simple question, which I think animates a lot of how this audience approaches their lives and their work, which is, how do we do as much good as possible? And more specifically, where should I donate in order to achieve as much good as possible? Um, and so two of my colleagues, Ali Hassenfeld, who's, who's at GiveWell, and, and Holden Karnofsky, who's now at OpenPhil, started asking this question while they were kind of young professionals just out of college looking to donate um, extra earnings that they had while they're working at a hedge fund. And I think the thing that they realized pretty early on is that it's surprisingly hard to go online and find good answers to the question of where is my donation going to do the most good possible? And what is it actually going to result in, in terms of improvements in people's lives compared to what would have happened to those people's lives without my donation? And so that kind of started as the core project of GiveWell, really just two guys trying to figure out where to give their money to do the most good uh, and has since evolved to, to what GiveWell is today. Specifically, uh, how does GiveWell do its work? At a very basic level, what GiveWell is trying to do is, you know, we have a bunch of researchers and we're searching to find the programs that either save the most lives per dollar spent or improve people's lives the most per dollar spent and, you know, improve their lives in terms of improving their income or consumption. And, you know, this team of researchers is looking really hard at the existing evidence of programs that have been studied where there's evidence of what how effective they are, and then really trying to model out if we were to donate additional dollars to those programs, what's the kind of cost effectiveness of the marginal dollar, or what is the next marginal dollar donated to these causes going to actually buy us in terms of improvements in people's lives. Um, and so in practice, what that looks like is a team of researchers that are 
doing a couple of things. One is scanning the entire academic literature to try to understand what programs have been tried, which of those programs have rigorous evidence of effectiveness, and then which of those are kind of likely to be highly cost-effective in terms of having high bang for your dollar. And then there's you know, a separate set of activities, which is around, you know, in addition to the academic literature, having conversations with practitioners in the field to try to understand what are people working on and what are promising programs that might not yet be in the academic literature. And then I think the third kind of angle that Gibbel's research team takes to try to figure out what are the programs that we could direct funding to that do the most good possible is actually starting in a more bottoms up way, which is to say, what are the diseases that kill the most people? In what places do those exist? And which of those seem like they could be tractable in terms of making progress through more philanthropic dollars? And so there's this kind of multi-layered strategy to try to arrive at what are the few number of programs that are going to do the most good possible with additional dollars? Yeah, and this is quite different to the way that organizations like, say, Charity Navigator work, which they try and take a really broad approach of look at every organization, say, in America, look at some really simple metrics, um, and then spit that back out to people. You're looking at things quite differently. Can you explain the difference there? Yeah, no, it's a really important distinction. You know, I think the thing that we're not trying to do is to rate on a kind of shallow basis hundreds and hundreds or thousands of organizations. Instead, what we're trying to do is find the few number of organizations that are kind of the absolute best in terms of improvements in people's lives per dollar spent. And so that leads you to a very different research and search strategy than if your job was to basically say, all right, there's, you know, tens of thousands of nonprofits out in the world, and let's just guide potential donors to make sure that there's, you know, which of the organizations don't have any fraud and have good controls and things like that, which is an important function to play in the ecosystem, but it's definitely not our focus. Uh, and, you know, our focus is much more on um, not trying to boil the ocean, but instead search for the programs that are likely to do the most good possible. And so we spend a disproportionate amount of time actually going incredibly deep on a relatively smaller number of organizations and program areas rather than spending a lot of time trying to kind of give a grade to a larger number of organizations. And how does GiveWell define and also measure effectiveness? So I think the first distinction I'd make is between effectiveness and cost effectiveness. I think that there's been really a, a genuine revolution within global health and global development on caring about effectiveness. And so this has been accompanied by a kind of revolution in techniques like randomized controlled trials to actually measure is something better than what would have happened without it. Um, so the same way that we test clinical trials, testing different development programs. Um, and that often gives you a measure of effectiveness. You know, how much does it reduce maternal mortality or how much does a program improve uh, student learning outcomes? And I think the first distinction I draw is that you can find a bunch of programs that are quote unquote effective, that there's rigorous evidence that they're better than zero. But the thing that GiveWell really cares about is cost effectiveness, which is how much good happens per dollar spent. And so essentially the way that we try to measure that is still starting first with rigorous evidence of program effectiveness. So the first step is to say, is there rigorous evidence to suggest that this program is meaningfully improving lives compared to what would have happened in the absence of that program? And so there we're usually looking at 
again, as I said, either the academic literature or funding organizations to create new evidence around program effectiveness. Then the second step is to say, okay, if a program has improved health outcomes by a certain amount um, or income by a certain amount, then what are the costs associated with generating that improvement in people's lives? And so there's a very intense process that give all researchers undergo to model the cost effectiveness of program. And we try to capture all of the costs required um, to implement a particular program uh, to arrive at a cost effectiveness model. And the upshot of that entire process is that we are trying to find programs that are substantially better than just giving cash to the lowest income communities in the world. And so our measure of effectiveness or cost effectiveness is that we're looking for programs that are, you know, anywhere between four to 10 times better than just giving out cash to the lowest income communities in the world. And so that's our benchmark. Our benchmark is a certain number of multiples better than direct cash transfers. And, you know, I think that is something that can raise a lot of questions because you might say, well, how are you actually going to compare saving someone's life through a health intervention compared to giving cash to people who are really poor. And that gets into like a whole other aspect of GiveWell's work, which is trying to come to some reasoned stance on how do you trade off different moral goods, you know, saving a life versus improving consumption or income. And, you know, happy to talk more about that. But I think at the high level, the way that we measure effectiveness and cost effectiveness is, A, we're trying to beat just giving cash to the poorest people in the world. And the way that we measure whether we're beating that benchmark is by relying on kind of rigorous evidence of what would have happened to these communities and individuals in the absence of our programs. And we tend to do that through measuring programs via randomized controlled trials, but that's definitely not um, exclusively the case. Yeah, and can you talk about some of those outcomes that are included in that calculation? Yeah. So, you know, for any given program, let's say on the health side, you know, we're looking at deaths averted. So for instance, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths due to malaria around the world each year. We invest in programs that provide anti-malarial bed nets in places that otherwise wouldn't have gotten them. And in our calculation of the cost effectiveness of anti-malarial bed nets, there's one part, which is, you know, how many deaths would we avert? There's another portion of that calculation, which is even if, you know, someone wouldn't have died, they might have gotten malaria and that would have led to some negative health effects. We try to bake that into the cost effectiveness calculation. And then we also try to bake in kind of income or consumption effects from not having gotten sick. And so we bake all of that into the deaths, morbidity reduction, as well as improvements in consumption or income into our cost effectiveness estimates. And what about things that are harder to measure or can't even be measured? Um, how do you think, how does people think about them? Yeah, so, you know, there's definitely a whole world of potential investment opportunities that are much harder to measure. The bulk of our portfolio and the money that we direct do go to programs, again, where there's rigorous evidence of effectiveness and are more measurable. But we try to apply the same logic to programs that are harder to measure. So for instance, there's kind of portion of our portfolio around public health regulation. 
and where we've directed funding to programs that are trying to drive some policy change or regulatory change that ultimately could save a lot of lives or improve a lot of lives, but are just harder to measure in the way I described through a randomized trial. And so an example of that is our work funding the Center for Pesticide Suicide Prevention. You know, so as a lot of listeners might know, there's a fairly high number of suicides, often by farmers, through the ingestion of pesticides across South Asia. And it turns out that a bunch of these pesticides are actually kind of much more likely to kill someone when they're ingested, and they have good complements of you know, other pesticides that farmers can still use for their agricultural work without much of a decrease in productivity. And so if you're able to get governments to ban the pesticides that kind of disproportionately result in death from, from people ingesting them, then you can potentially have a really cost-effective program, but it looks much different than delivering a health product to a specific person. And so the way that we approach a problem like that is still to try to model out, you know, what is the probability that a grant to a think tank or advocacy organization is going to successfully lead to the government of Nepal banning these pesticides. If the government of Nepal bans these pesticides successfully, how many fewer deaths do we expect to happen because of that? And then how much of that can we attribute to ourselves? What's the probability that would have happened without our work? And so we go through this whole modeling exercise. And a lot of the numbers that we put into that are going to be pretty subjective. You know, what's the probability that this policy or regulatory change would have happened without GiveWell's funding to this organization is pretty subjective. We have ways of triangulating that. But I think what the modeling exercise forces is kind of like discipline on the assumptions behind our calculation. It allows people who might disagree to push back, and then you kind of calibrate the answer. And so, you know, we made such a grant, it did ultimately lead to the government Nepal banning certain pesticides. And we think that's kind of a big win. And we've modeled that to be roughly as cost effective or slightly better than other direct delivery programs we funded. And so I think the first thing I'd say is that we do direct funding to programs that are harder to measure. It comes with its own set of risks and considerations, but the core approach of trying to quantitatively model what your counterfactual impact is going to be is something that I think is incredibly valuable, even for things where there's far more qualitative or subjective inputs into that model, because it just allows people to debate and disagree transparently versus making a, you know, just like a, a higher level argument. So that's one. And then the second part of the answer is just that there's a bunch of things out there in the world that could be super effective that is kind of out of scope for GiveWell's strategy. And we don't have a kind of firm view that we've looked at everything else out there in the world that's harder to measure and come to the conclusion that, you know, our strategy is definitely better. And so, you know, I think just want to add a note of humility that there could be other things out there that are harder to measure that are very worthy of a good hard look, even within our kind of core principles of doing the most good possible, but it's not where we're focusing our energy right now. And, and GiveWell does look at other things that are a little bit less outcomes focused and, and a bit more process focused, like transparency as well. All of our research is, is fully transparently available, uh, including mistakes we've made. And you know, one of our hopes is that by publicly publishing all of our models, as well as the rationale for grants, that um, kind of critical supporters and engaged readers can point out ways for us to get better. Now, uh, things have changed a lot since uh, GiveWell's uh, early days, and um, partly due to the success of GiveWell, which is wonderful. There's a lot more money uh, available with uh, 
the focus on effectiveness uh, within the effective altruism community and people who've kind of taken to this way of giving. What's quite notable too is a number of uh, very large, uh, you know, high net worth individuals at philanthropic institutions. Uh, with this influx of capital, what do you see the role of small donors uh, going forward? Let me answer it in two parts. The first is that I think small donors are are super important because it doesn't really matter how much you're giving. You know, the core give all project is what is the impact of the marginal dollar spent? And so whether you're donating $100, you know, at the end of the year, or are, you know, one of GiveWell's largest donors donating tens or even like hundreds of millions of dollars a year, the core project of GiveWell is essentially to have a reasonably good answer about how much good is the marginal dollar actually going to achieve in terms of improving lives. And so there's almost like a impact equivalency, regardless of whether you're donating a relatively small amount or very large amounts. You know, there's billions of dollars potentially flowing through to the effective giving and effective altruist movements through large donors. And so what might be in the minds of smaller donors is, well, you know, is my money really necessary? Shouldn't I just let these larger donors cover it? And, you know, I think the big thing that we're working at at, at GiveWell is to continue to find really cost-effective, what we call room for more funding. So programs that can absorb more money on the margin and deploy that cost effectively to improve lives. And so essentially what we want to strive to is have a kind of corpus of giving opportunities that exceed the total amount of capital that's currently available to us. And so that's a big research project for GiveWell is to make sure that the total amount of really good giving opportunities that we can present to our supporters and our audience outpaces the total amount of money that's already been committed to these types of causes. And as readers might note, last year, we decided to roll over a small portion, small percentage of our funding, in part because we felt quite optimistic about the cost effectiveness and quality of new grants that we'd be able to find in the next year or two relative to our backup option, which was spending that money on unconditional cash transfers to low-income families. Um, And so I think if I were a small donor, the thing that I would be looking out for is um, what is the extent to which GiveWell and others are continuing to find really good giving opportunities that outpace the amount of money that it already has at its discretion to give. And part of that is just acknowledging that there's been a huge amount of growth in the amount of money coming into this community. And so we shouldn't necessarily, or I wouldn't necessarily expect that, you know, in the first year or two of massive increase in money raised, that we're going to know exactly what to do with it. But there's a little bit of either the faith in the research process to uncover the next set of giving opportunities that outpace um, the amount of giving, or you know, waiting and seeing if that comes to fruition. But but I think that that's kind of the core consideration for smaller donors. You know, one is that you can really have the same level of impact for your marginal dollar that very large funders can, and that's a very new thing in the history of philanthropy. You know, most large scale philanthropic projects have been driven by principles with a lot of money. And this kind of, you know, in a weird sense, like the people's large foundation where you're able to piggyback off of world-class research and and find the same opportunities that normally larger donors would have. And then secondly, is to just ask yourself the question, do we think this research process and this machine is, 
is one worth investing in, and that is going to continually find the places where the marginal dollar is best spent, even if in the coming year, they might have you know, what they consider an excess of funds relative to the likelihood of finding better opportunities in the future. Um, actually, on that point, it'd be great if you could share the context of rolling over funds uh, when there are organizations like the Against Malaria Foundation, which still publish having a funding gap. Yeah, great question. So, you know, last year, GiveWell was able, you know, was very fortunate to have raised a large amount of money. Uh, a big chunk of that came from our largest donors via open philanthropy, about 60% of our money moved. And essentially, we made the decision to roll over a portion of funds, um, which was pretty small, you know, like well under, I think probably under 5% of the total funds available to us. And there's a distinction, I think, between the numbers that different nonprofits like the Against Malaria Foundation might report in terms of what they believe to be additional money that they can absorb and what GiveWell thinks are is kind of the bar of cost effectiveness that we can achieve. You know, it's kind of a no-brainer. I used to run uh, an, an operating nonprofit and, you know, it's a kind of crazy world to say that, oh, actually, like, we have more money than we know what to do with. I think almost every nonprofit out there would say, we can definitely use additional money. These are the next 10 things that we would use it on. The difference is that, you know, I think GiveWell, we're trying to say, can we find more opportunities that are near the bar of cost effectiveness that we've had historically, which, you know, has been around, let's say, three to $6,000 per counterfactual life saved or death averted. And so oftentimes when a program gets more money, they'll move to a new geography or a different program area that's less cost effective. Whereas GiveWell is trying to say, are there, what are the other programs that are going to be roughly as cost effective as our, as our previous giving and not having to move too far down the ladder of cost effectiveness? And, you know, that I think that's another counterintuitive thing is that for the same exact evidence-backed program, how much good you do per dollar spent can vary dramatically based on where you're implementing it. So as an example of that, GiveWell you know, has researched seasonal malaria chemo prevention, which is giving pills to people during the malaria high season to prevent them from getting malaria and dying. There's a lot of evidence that it works really well. There's high burden of malaria across a bunch of different countries in the world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa. But actually, if you do the cost-effectiveness modeling, you find that that same exact evidence-based program in Burkina Faso is around $4,000 per life saved. And if you move over to Chad, which also has a high burden of disease and malaria, it's $9,000 per life saved. And so you get these huge swings in how many lives you're actually saving with the same amount of money just based on where you're targeting a program geographically. Uh, and so I think, again, that's the kind of dynamic that leads GiveWell to think that even if another implementing organization says they have a funding gap, um, that we might find that funding gap less compelling than other opportunities to spend that money. Some have made the claim in the past that the effective altruism movement broadly ignores things that aren't measurable through RCTs or concrete data, things like the aforementioned um, advocacy and policy work. Uh, what are your thoughts on this critique, especially as it relates to your recommended charities? First of all, I think it's it's really good to have robust debate and critiques. And so the kind of like better and more steel man version of that critique and pushback on GiveWell, I think the better it is for the world, the better it is for our own thinking in terms of 
where we direct funding. I think the first part of how I would respond is just you know a little bit of a clarification, which is that GiveWell, while disproportionately funds things that are based on kind of rigorous experimental evidence, has directed a lot of money to programs that are harder to measure, like the um, policy uh, advocacy and public health regulation work that I mentioned earlier. The second thing that I would say is that, you know, it's less sexy now than it was 10 years ago, but there's something super powerful about saying that there's a relatively high degree of confidence that we're going to counterfactually save someone's life, which is disproportionately like under five kids who are going to probably live on average an extra 50 years. And I think it is very easy to discount how much value welfare and well-being there is in generating an additional 50 life years of joy and love and friendships and life experience for people for just a couple of thousand dollars. And I think that there's the positive side of the push to find higher leverage giving opportunities to look for more systemic change or to fund scientific research that has really high upside. But I think it's worth taking a moment to really internalize kind of just how good and practical it feels to say that, you know, we've generated, say, 40 or 50 additional life years for a couple thousand dollars. And then to try to gauge how good those riskier, harder to measure things are relative to the opportunity cost of saving people's lives with that same amount of money. And so that's like a, a second point that I'd make, which I think is you know, super important and frankly, pretty easy to dismiss in the pursuit of kind of newer, more exciting opportunities. And then the third is just that, you know, yeah, like kind of vigorous agreement that there's probably a lot of space to be thinking about directing money to to things that are harder to measure but have very high upside. And the big question that I have on those is just, you know, how tractable is it with additional philanthropic dollars? Um, and, you know, I, you know, we're very excited also to follow that kind of work and see what we can learn from it. And so there's definitely no knock on that impulse and the really good work that's happening in that direction. But I do think, um, it's worth taking a hard look at how good that looks relative to the opportunity cost of, of more direct impact. It'd be great if you could just quickly unpack for the, maybe the newer listener who hasn't uh, heard about this too much before, but just, you mentioned fungibility. Uh, so it'd be great if you could explain a little bit about that uh, for people who may not be aware of what that means. Yeah. So the core consideration behind fungibility is just that, you know, GiveWell cares about and, you know, probably most, average donors, regardless of how much you're giving, should care about how much good are your marginal dollars doing. And in order to understand that, you kind of have to understand how your giving is going to affect others. And so let me give you two examples. One is when GiveWell is directing money to a program like anti-malarial bed nets in Nigeria, you know, there's obviously the scientific evidence on how many lives that's likely to save compared to communities that don't get those bed nets. And we model that. But then the other thing that we try to model, and this is where fungibility comes in, is if GiveWell is directing $50 million a year of anti-malarial programming to Nigeria, what's the likelihood that that's going to cause the government of Nigeria 
to basically reallocate some of the money that they had intended to spend in the health space or in malaria? What's the likelihood that GiveWell's $50 million in Nigeria is likely to crowd out the Global Fund or the World Bank or the Gates Foundation from those programs? And we care a lot about that because if we're crowding out money that was going to go to things that we think were really good, and that money then ends up going to things that we think are much less cost effective, then we should essentially be subtracting that from our own marginal impact. And so fungibility is basically trying to get a good handle on a, what's the probability that a particular donation is going to crowd out or cause another donor to spend on something else? And then B, how good is that something else that they're spending on? And if it's not very good, then you know our marginal dollar wasn't well spent there. And so we're trying to get a really solid understanding and incorporate that into our cost effectiveness of whether we're crowding out others into things that are much less good than we thought. Uh, and then you know for the retail donor, I think the fungibility question just comes up as, well, if I think I'm earmarking my donation for a particular thing, and that just causes GiveWell to move money from the thing I think I was earmarking it for to something else, then really the right way to understand the impact of my dollar as a retail donor is essentially just to look at the whole basket of things that GiveWell is funding. And that's really kind of my true, the true impact of my dollars, not the thing that I think in my head I'm earmarking for. So even if I give directly to the Against Malaria Foundation, in a sense, GiveWell is then changing their behavior by the same amount of money, and that money might go to something like uh, you know, uh, preventing the deaths through pesticide uh, uh, that was a more of a policy intervention, um, even though the individual donor wasn't funding that themselves. That's right, yeah. And another related uh, criticism of this approach is that on focus on not even health, but also on economic policies that we've seen uh, over the you know, last few decades, uh, in particular, the latter half of the 20th century, a lot of people came out of poverty in part due to economic uh, changes. Uh, is that something that GiveWell has looked at and uh, would consider looking at? And what thoughts that, do you have on that as an approach compared to the health-based approach that GiveWell is primarily focused on? Yeah, and Luke, just to clarify, I mean, you're asking about the extent to which GiveWell has looked into potential fundable opportunities to increase economic growth for uh, society as a whole. Yeah, and especially that maybe compared to cash transfers, which is probably the most similar kind of apples to apples comparison. Again, really important question. You know, I think we've done some shallow investigations to try to understand how promising it would be to make grants within the kind of economic, the broad space of improving economic growth of low-income country governments. Uh, I think the thing that we find very challenging, and that probably anyone else looking at the space find very challenging, is just that there are so many inputs into economic growth. And so thinking about where the marginal philanthropic dollar could really change the growth rate of a country is quite hard not just because it's going to be very hard to attribute, most likely, um, and so trying to figure out you know, how much good is that extra dollar doing, but also because it tends to be the kind of thing where there's a lot of energy. And so in very crowded spaces where there's a lot of money, whether that's private sector capital, government capital, philanthropic capital, there's almost like a, a prima facie case that you should be a little skeptical that you're going to find really tractable, great opportunities. And so that's not to sound 
overly pessimistic about philanthropic capital potentially improving economic growth, because if you're able to do that, the upside could be tremendous, especially in countries like Indonesia or Ethiopia or Nigeria that are these huge countries that are growing and you know that would affect a lot of people. And certainly that's how India and China have let so many millions of people out of poverty. Um, but I think there's this critical question of just how tractable is it for the additional philanthropic capital to meaningfully move um, economic growth in a particular country or set of countries. You know, I think where GiveWell's left it is that we did some shallow investigation. We still feel like there are opportunities um, to do a huge amount of good that are underfunded and neglected by governments, multilaterals, and other foundations. And so that's where we're focusing in the near term. But certainly, you know, it's another thing that we would watch and, and read with close interest if, as other people are working on trying to find ways to improve economic growth. And another qu criticism, um, I'm giving them all to you at the moment, <laughs> uh, but it's really great to have these answers on the on the record. Um, I think it'd be really helpful for people. Um, but another criticism that's uh, often put forth is that GiveWell's broad recommendations might not respond to local information and needs. Do you think these sorts of concerns have significant impact on your ability to help or if there's other concerns that you'd have around that and how might you answer someone who uh, would ask that? Yeah, again, you know, I think a really important consideration. It's one that I actually feel like GiveWell has a fairly robust approach to, though there's always room for improvement. So I think the first level of that is, are we actively incorporating the preferences of the communities with which we're working? And so, you know, before I joined GiveWell, I was the CEO of an organization called ID Insight, and, and GiveWell worked with ID Insight essentially to run a series of um, research projects and surveys with communities in rural Ghana and rural Kenya to essentially ask them, what are your preferences? You know, there's a lot of work that we could do sitting in California trying to estimate, is it better to save the life of a kid under five versus improve the incomes of, you know, 100 people living under poverty? But actually, a really, really important input into how we prioritize resources has to be the preferences of the people living in those communities. And so we did fairly extensive research asking people in those communities, you know, how would you trade off programs that improve the health of the population and community versus programs that improved income or consumption of those communities? And that research has meaningfully informed how GiveWell allocates resources between life-saving programs and income-improving programs. So that's first is that there is like, you know, we, we have invested in, you know, relatively large scale surveys and, and research to understand the preferences of the communities that we're working with and working in. Um, the second is, you know, I think relying on our implementing partners and organizations that we direct money to, to have a really good read on what the communities actually want and having that on the ground presence. You know, I, I don't think that it's necessarily the case that every single organization needs to replicate the same level of deep understanding of the needs of a community. I think what you need to do is like be really smart about which organizations understand that well and then defer to their judgment. And so, you know, GiveWell basically as a funder gives a high degree of, you know, trust 
and we vet organizations on this basis of to what extent do we think they understand the needs of the communities in which they work. And we fund a lot of organizations, including organizations that were founded in and headquartered in the global south. So organizations like IRD in Pakistan and others where you know we don't feel the need to replicate their on-the-ground presence. Instead, we feel the need to listen carefully to what they think are, are the needs in those communities. That's the second piece. And then the third is just having really robust monitoring and evaluation for those programs. If the intended outcomes are improving health or education, you know, if we're investing in surveys and representative surveys of, of the communities where these programs are happening, we hope to learn a lot from that versus thinking that, you know, just lighter touch, give well people in the field is, is going to meaningfully be better than that. And then, you know, I think the last thing that I'd say about the being locally grounded is is just that our primary obligation is to the communities, you know, people living in really low income communities or communities of, that have very high burden of disease. And so when we're listening, we're really trying to listen first and foremost to to those voices, and and we feel like doing that through um, extensive investment in in surveys and conversations with you know organizations that are well placed to do that makes a lot of sense versus us trying to, you know, signal that that's what we care about by having, spending more give well team time directly in those places versus getting really good kind of indications from our grantees and from independent surveys. So some charities like the Against Polaria Foundation have been a give well top rated charity for the past 10 years. Some might argue that this is a failure uh, insofar as we fail to fund them up to the point where they're no longer cost effective enough to be a top charity. How convincing do you find that argument? You know, to a certain extent, that's true, right? There's a version of the world where the Against Malaria Foundation either no longer needs to exist or is much smaller because national governments and the global fund are finding all of those gaps and filling them in the same way. That would be a great state of the world, but it also ignores the very real political economy constraints that lead to the need for organizations like AMF. So AMF's a great example because there's this organization, the Global Fund, which has done incredible work. It's a multilateral body that collects um, money from high-income country governments and, and private donors and has you know multi-billion dollar um, set of very technocratic, evidence-based programs in HIV, AIDS, malaria, and TB. And I think it's a huge success story for humanity that we've been collectively able to do this. But in order to maintain its legitimacy as a multilateral body, it can't be seen to be too preferential to any one country. And so as a result, it underfunds malaria prevention in Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of Congo, even though they have such a disproportionate share of the debts, because if they actually fully funded those two countries, it would look like too much of this global public good is going to just two countries out of many. And in order to maintain their legitimacy, you know, they have to, and they do kind of change some of the technical criteria to overfund a little bit in Nigeria and DRC, but they can't do it fully because of the realities of how the world works and, and political economy constraints. And so as a result, there are these chronic shortages of really cheap, 
evidence-based commodities to prevent deaths from malaria in Nigeria and DRC. And the Against Malaria Foundation does a great job, and so does Malaria Consortium, of filling those gaps. Now, you know, you could definitely see that as a failure of the global health community, or you can say the Global Fund was a huge success and, and continues to be, but there's going to be some limitations and there's going to be some important role for private philanthropy to play to plug the gaps in both like market failures and public sector failures that are going to exist in a complex world. So, you know, I think that's kind of how I see at least that particular case study. So the, you know, $4,500 as it currently sits roughly now uh, per life saved statistic is often surprising uh, to people, either how low it is for some people or how high it is for other people. Uh, but it is one that certainly like strikes people and, and is often a point of conversation at a point at which people start to dig into it and get a bit more interested. Are there any other statistics or numbers that you find uh, to be quite compelling or interesting or there are huge misconceptions about um, that you find uh, come to mind when you're talking with people for the first time? That's a great question. You know, I, I agree that uh, whatever, four to $5,000 for a kind of genuine life saved gets wildly different reactions depending on who you talk to. Some feel like that's so expensive in part because of years of development marketing that 50 cents can save the life of a child. You know, I think World Food Program actually had um, messaging like that. Ken does a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ken, exactly. Um, you know, but also because the things that we're directing funding to are legitimately cheap. You know, it's around $5 to procure and get to the last mile an anti-malarial bed net. That's a life-saving product that's only $5, but obviously every household you give it to that those individuals are not going to die from malaria. And so it actually ends up netting to around four to $5,000 per life saved. Um, you know, in terms of other, and sorry, I would say on, on the other side, I think a lot of people you talk to kind of see $4,000 to literally save someone's life is just mind-blowingly cheap. Um, and you think about the kinds of things that we spend, you know, $4,000 on and it, and it definitely makes you seriously reconsider just you know how you structure your your life and disposable income, and so we get the wide range of responses to that figure. I think you know other figures that are quite surprising, depending on the audience, is just the differential between material well-being, so income per capita in the poorest countries and communities in the world, versus even low-income people in in rich countries. Um, and you know this isn't meant to minimize the real challenges that low-income people face living in, in high un, in, in rich countries. But just the figure of under a dollar a day or under $2 a day poverty is very hard to wrap your mind around because that figure is actually meant to replicate the true purchasing power of if you're living in a rich country and actually had just $1 or $2 per day for all of your subsistence. Um, and that is extremely hard, I think, even for people that have spent a lot of time thinking about it and studying it, to wrap your head around what it means to live at that level of material deprivation. So I think that's that's one figure. And then the second is just the rates of infant mortality in the richest countries and the poorest countries. You know, it is it is shocking just how much more likely, um, you know, if you're a parent that your kid is going to die in infancy or childhood in the lowest income parts of the world versus rich countries. And that delta is just, you know, it's absolutely 
huge between the DRC and Japan, for instance. It's, re it's really hard to for anyone to understand low probabilities, let alone things that are like you know an order of magnitude different when it comes to low probabilities. But I think those are those are two that are, are really hard for people to wrap their heads around. But if you're able to then have huge implications for how we should be spending our time and money uh, as a kind of collective humanity. Yeah, that was certainly uh, a big motivator for me when it came to really ramping up my giving. <laughs> uh, it was just um, the sheer disparity and then the massive opportunity to make a huge difference to someone else's life. So we've touched a little bit on political economy, and this will probably cover a little bit of that ground again. But rich countries typically spend uh, billions of dollars on foreign aid each year. Why wouldn't they just say, give the money to your top recommended charities? Um, and what's, you know, so why do individual donors take that burden in a sense? You know, I mean, I think the first, and not to give an overly simplistic or cop-out answer, is that many large aid institutions are not operating from the principle of maximizing the cost effectiveness of their dollar. You know, there's are just real institutions that have real political constraints or considerations. And so at the highest level, an organization like USAID, which, you know, certainly does some very good work, has other considerations beyond what's going to do the most good possible. You know, there's going to be a weighting to certain countries that might be more geopolitically relevant or important to the United States. And so they're just there's a different optimization function that large foreign aid organizations have, even though directionally they do care about the same things for sure. And there's you know tons of very smart, well-intentioned people within those organizations, but there's very real institutional constraints around the ability to to direct money to things that are most cost effective. So the first is institutional constraints. You know, I think the second is there's kind of a different imagined role for some of these organizations, which could either be around building systems or, you know, USAID's current um, strategy, which is like the what they call the journey to self-reliance or kind of transitioning to countries to no longer need a foreign aid. And, and I think when you're kind of optimizing for a particular thing, if that's like strengthening a health system versus trying to figure out where your dollars can save the most lives, you end up doing pretty different things. Sometimes the outcomes converge, but other times, you know, they don't. And I think you end up solving for the question that you're asking. And if you're asking, how do I save the most lives possible over the next X years, you're going to come to a set of solutions. And if you're solving for the question, how do we most strengthen health systems or get a country on a journey to self-reliance, you're going to come to a different set of answers, even if you're answering those with kind of like high fidelity. And so, you know, I just, I think that these organizations, it's, it's easy to underestimate how important it is to have a laser focus on the core question of how do we do as much good as possible. I can speak to, you know, my previous hats I've worn in the highly technocratic evidence-oriented spaces of global health and development. And the questions that those spaces asked was not always how do we save the most lives per dollar spent there were things like how do we apply data and evidence tools in order to make better decisions and so that's just going to lead you to a very different set of solutions which maybe end up overlapping perfectly if you're asking the question how do we save the most lives per dollar spent but probably are not going to and so i think you know that's a, a big part of what explains um 
that. Yeah, there's also some kind of almost game theoretic uh, things at play here as well, that a rich country's government uh, has very clear incentives as to how they're going to get elected or out in terms of the politicians and the bureaucrats have their KPIs. And very few of those things happen to align on what's going to help someone in a far-off country that isn't necessarily a neighbour of yours uh, you know, improve their lives the most. It just seems to be very... Uh, distantly related from any incentive uh, in the whole chain of events. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that I think that's totally right. So Gitwell uh, also helps manage the uh, EA Fund's Global Health and Development Fund and recommends grants to open philanthropy and other donors outside of your uh, those directing uh, money to, to you directly uh, as kind of the retail donor. Can you talk a little bit about some of the this grant-making side of things that uh, Gibwell does? You've mentioned a little bit of this already. Can you talk to that and the role it plays in grant-making in general? Yeah, definitely. So there's the kind of core product that most people would be aware of that Gibwell has, which is you know, our top charities, which are programs that there's a high degree of confidence in the kind of like expected value of impact that donations are going to generate there. Things like anti-malarial bed nets, vitamin A supplementation, et cetera. So that's kind of part one. Then GiveWell kind of figures out where is there the most need every quarter within that subset of organizations. So a more dynamic optimization of where money is going to do the most good within that set of really vetted organizations and programs. And then there's this huge additional part of GiveWell, and, and frankly, a lot of our money moved, that is either to what we call new interventions, so programs outside the top charities that we think could meet a similar bar in terms of cost effectiveness, ability to absorb more funding and being evidence-backed. And in addition to that, funding research for the creation of new fundable programs. And so, um, you know, GiveWell does think really hard about, can we spend, say, can we direct donors money of like X million dollars to run a randomized trial that could tell us whether a new program is really cost effective and then can absorb tens or hundreds of millions of dollars over the coming years. And so, you know, EA funds and, and the open philanthropy recommendations that we make, the recommendations we make to open philanthropy are often to either the research to support the creation and identification of new great top charities um, or high confidence funding opportunities, or to things that are a little bit outside the bounds of the top charities, like the policy advocacy and public health regulation work that I mentioned. But I think it's you know kind of important in the in the spirit of give well transparency just to note that a lot of this money is genuinely fungible, right? And so you could say that, okay, with EA funds, Gibbles making higher risk bets and with open fills money, they're spending more on research to create new top charities. But I think the honest answer is that for the most part, and this is a little bit of an oversimplification, all of this money is a little bit fungible. You know, you're kind of contributing to all of those various pieces and it is the case that the vast majority of money does go to programs that are kind of high confidence, really cost-effective and evidence-backed. And so the top charities are a very good proxy for the cost-effectiveness of your marginal dollar. But there are all these other pools of funding that we direct to research or newer programs um, or to harder-to-measure programs. Are there any common misconceptions that we haven't yet covered uh, that people have about GiveWell that you'd like to clarify? 
So, you know, one is just that, you know, Gibble only relies on RCT evidence and is very narrow in its top charity list. Uh, I think we've covered that, you know, through ex- discussing Gibble's policy advocacy and public health regulation work. Uh, I think there's other grants we've made, like for malnutrition last year, where there's no RCT evidence, but really robust kind of observational evidence about the extent to which severe acute malnutrition could lead to mortality. So, you know, I think that's that's one set of misconceptions. I think there's a second set of misconceptions about GiveWell, you know, which is that the relative stability of the top charity list means that, you know, we're just kind of sitting around and and not interrogating things. And I and I would say that the relative stability of the top charity list is more a signal of the government and public sector failures to close all the gaps for ways to really cheaply save lives than it is a function of GiveWell's research team not being aggressive enough to find new opportunities. You know, the world is getting a lot better, but it's also broken in some fundamental ways. And we've talked about the political economy constraints of the Global Fund, which is a phenomenal organization, and national governments, which just mean that there are these opportunities to save lives really cheaply. And as long as those exist, you know, I guess we're not faddish enough to say that like, oh, well, we've been doing that for 10 years. Let's like move away from anti-malarial bed nets. We're going to ask the question, what are the things that legitimately beat anti-malarial bed nets in northern Nigeria? And so I think that's a, a second thing I'd say. And then the third is, um, you know, just how important the deep research is on even those things that are like already evidence back. So having teams every quarter thinking about where are the funding gaps, where is the global fund or government of X country not going to fund this preventative health thing really helps us get at where the where the best programs are. And so there's this, even within the top charity list, this dynamic optimization of where the money's going to go the furthest any given quarter, any given year that takes a lot of work and involves figuring out you know, how is prevalence changing? How are other government um, donors' behavior changing so that we can put our money to the places that um, are going to be most underfunded and have the highest burden of disease? And so that's maybe a third is that it's, you know, it's, it's a very intense and detail-oriented process to really identify the best funding gaps, even within programs that we've been funding for five plus years. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, your personal journey to where you are now. What are the significant steps along the way? How did you end up where you are? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that, Luke. You know, I I grew up um, in a small town in Pennsylvania, really comfortably. My my parents were immigrants from Tanzania and India. And so growing up, we'd go back to see family from East Africa and India basically every summer. And growing up, those were just visits to see cousins. But I think kind of more deeply ingrained in the back of my mind was just the observation that especially in the late 80s and 1990s, India and and Kenya and Tanzania were closed economies, very low income. And even though our family was kind of middle class, that, that meant that there were materially different life opportunities for kind of people that had literally the same genes as me, similar kind of home values. And that was, I think, quite striking, especially when I went to college and read as a freshman, John Rawls, The Theory of Justice, 
um, you know, where it talks about the veil of ignorance. And if you had to design society, not knowing where you'd end up, what kind of society would you want to create? And impressing, you know, I think on me, just the accident of birth and the extent to which, you know, how much we have in life is really morally arbitrary and a, a function of things like where we're born. And so I think it was that kind of early life experience plus reading folks like John Rawls and Peter Singer that um, kind of really made it apparent, at least for me, that you know the point of my life is to try to create a world in which everyone has the full opportunity to live the life that they have reason to value, whatever version of, of life that is. And so that kind of led me down this um, chain of, of work to, to give well. And in the interim, you know, there was a, a detour as a, as a physician. I went to medical school and found it quite frustrating to kind of see one patient at a time when there were much deeper structural factors leading those individuals to, to be sick. And even if they got better, to go back to conditions where they weren't able to live the best versions of their lives that they could. And so I think that's probably fairly familiar to a lot of people in the audience and, and thinking about how they've arrived at at least some version of alignment with effective altruist principles. Yeah, it is quite interesting too. You mentioned um, both Rawls and Singer as uh, you know quite fundamental philosophers who come from very different schools of philosophical thought, but I find it's quite common to see them converging on, this is crazy that there is so many people whose lives could be materially improved um, and we're not doing nearly enough about that um, and we should. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I think uh, all the philosophers in the audience will cringe when I say that. Like, I, I think of Rawls not as a Kantian, but as a utilitarian because that's, you know, that's that's a conclusion I'd come to if I were behind the veil of ignorance. Yeah, it was quite funny. I uh, was having a conversation the other day how a lot of my kind of justice-leaning uh, intuitions are often leaning towards welfareist outcomes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, it's justice about welfare. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, look, this has been such a wonderful uh, hour and a bit chatting with you. Um, before we finish up, is there anything that you'd love our listeners to do after hearing this conversation? You know, I, I think something that I periodically do and then am kind of pretty consistently, I guess, yeah, don't don't live up to the um, the action side of the reflection, but is just to reflect on the kind of two core considerations of, you know, how am I spending my time? And am I spending that time in a way that's gonna do as much good as possible? And then secondly, how am I just spending my disposable resources? And am I spending those resources in a way that are going to maximally contribute to to joy and well-being in the world? Um, you know, I think I, I fall pretty short of where I'd want to be, especially on the latter one. But I think the process of asking yourself those two questions with relatively high frequency with a group of people that also care about those questions and will push you on the answers to them and potentially even hold you accountable to making incremental improvements how you'd ideally like to live um, on both of those fronts is something that I have personally found um, very valuable. And so that's maybe what I'd, I'd leave listeners with. What a wonderful point to end on. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been uh, so interesting and inspiring. I'm, I really love the work that you do at GiveWell. I think it's been really great to see uh, you settling in, into this new role as well. So thank you again for your time and uh, until next time. Thanks so much, Luke. I really enjoyed the conversation and of course, all the work that you guys do. 
Thanks for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope you found it to be insightful. Don't forget to check out givingwhatwecan.org, where you can find our research on high-impact causes, donate to highly effective charities, and join our community of compassionate people. Finally, if someone you know will get value from this episode, why not share it with them? And until next time, keep on doing good.